0: Short play Alex financial guru Dave Ramsey's daughter Rachel Cruz recently shared Christmas budget tips so that families can avoid spending regrets following the holidays
1: Nick, I totally agree with Rachel you know last Christmas I bought Dave Ramsey's book and uh this Christmas I'm trying to sell it but the pawn shop said they'd only give me a dollar <laughs> spending regret that's it isn't it spending that's regret. Right. This is Swordplay, offering double-edged
0: perspective on scripture. We are your hosts. I am Nick Perez, Preaching Minister for the Davis Park
1: Church of Christ in Modesto, California. I'm Alex Flood, an evangelist for the Lake Phelan Church of Christ in St. Paul, Minnesota. On this episode of Swordplay, 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5, we're finishing up John's epistle, the first epistle of John. And you know what? It's been a long one. We've had some interruptions, and we are wrapping it up just in time for the end of the year so i think uh, it's been a good letter it's been a fun study so let us know what you think by uh, leaving a comment in your respective uh, podcast uh, app or platform and let's go ahead and finish up first john so verse one nick uh, verse one of first john when is someone born of god and what does it mean to believe yeah, that's a good question. Verse 1 says, Everyone
0: who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And so I'll start with the born of God question because, well, that was first asked. Um, the spiritual birth is a pivotal moment when an individual goes from death to life. They go from darkness to light. They go from heart of stone to heart of flesh, from sin to righteousness, from unbelief to belief, from conquered to conquering. And so without this spiritual birth, there can be no new life. Uh, The way this is written in the original, to be born of God is the work of God. The verb here, for has been born, is a passive voice verb, and that indicates God is the one who is operating on the individual. The force of this is also accentuated by the phrasing, we have been born and we stand begotten of God. That's the force of the perfect tense that is used here. But also, we not only have been born and stand begotten of God, we, are, we, we have been born and we stand begotten out of God. Uh, that's, again, the force of what John literally writes there. Now, back to everyone who believes, literally uh, this can also be translated, all the ones believing. And so this is a uh, a present tense participle. Uh, the present tense here indicates the ongoing nature of faith. That's what's in view here. So all the ones who keep on believing that Jesus is the Christ have been and stand begotten from God or out of God. Uh, so that's what I see here about uh, having been born of God and believing. What do you say, Alex?
1: Yeah, keep on believing, right. That's going to be something we hone in on a few times this episode. As we've noted throughout our study of First John, going back to John's gospel uh, can help us see the way in which John uses certain phrases and ideas. In the gospel of John, belief is past, it's present, and it's ongoing. John uses the word believe in the same way Paul uses the word faith in Paul's writings. There are, of course, points in which one may have expressed one's faith, but John focuses especially on the enduring nature of one's faith. It's active. It continues on in the present. So for John, to believe means to continue in one's belief. In John's Gospel, Jesus tells Nicodemus that he must be born again of water and spirit to enter the kingdom of God. I actually think that Jesus was referring to John's baptism with that, uh, John the Baptist, that is, which the Pharisees, Nicodemus, being one of them, had rejected for themselves, however, the new birth it had a transition from John's baptism to Jesus' baptism, so accepting Jesus as the Christ led one to baptism, in which one was born again of water and spirit, and one now continues in that belief, walking by the spirit, which John calls walking in the light. So when is one born of God, I put that in baptism. What does it mean to believe? It's that ongoing, enduring nature of belief, the continued expression of one's faith. Now, Nick, how do we uh, go, go about growing in love towards the children of God?
0: Yeah, John writes in verse 2, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. Uh, I see here, it's the way I define love, is the overarching, uh, even singular desire to see Christ formed in another person. And as Christians, the longer we walk with God, the deeper our communion with uh, Christ, with the Holy Spirit, I'm persuaded that new uh, desires, new affections are going to be produced within us. Uh, And the greatest of these desires is, again, to see Christ formed in another person. So as we desire to see Christ formed more perfectly in the hearts and minds of others, especially of our brethren, I I believe that grows. It blossoms over time as the Spirit operating within the Christian uh, continually produces new and perhaps even deeper affections uh, within us. Uh, And so that's what I see here in terms of growing in our love
1: for the children of God? What say you, Alex? You know, the way you put that, with desiring to see Christ formed more perfectly in the hearts and minds of our brethren, I think that uh, goes well with what John says later in the chapter, especially verses, uh, let's see here, verses 14 and 15. When we get there, we'll talk about the intercession of uh, the Christian for one another. But John does say, Whoever loves the Father loves the, chi- the child born of him. And so it seems that loving the children of God follows after loving the father. So if you love the father more, then you naturally increase in love for the father's children. I think that's at least part of what's going on here. How do we love the father more and more? Well, who showed us the father so that we might love him? Jesus shows us the father. He has revealed him and is the exact representation of his nature. Our love for Jesus is love for the father. So if the father and Jesus loved us and we in turn love him, then it follows that we grow to love what he loves. You know, King Saul, he loved power. Uh, King Solomon, he loved wisdom. But in between those two kings, there was only King David, who was a man uh, called one after God's own heart. David loved the father. But no one loves the father like the son of David, Jesus Christ, and we are sons of God when we believe in him and love one another. Now, Nick, in verse three, says the commands of God are not burdensome, but clarify this. How are God's commands not burdensome? Because don't we bear one another's burdens? Aren't there burdens that go along with being a Christian?
0: Yeah, it's a great question. Um, And it seems to be that what John is communicating here is that God's laws are not oppressive. They are not crushing. You know, there are many who are in the world, and even some in the church, who have the opposite view of John. They see commandments and keeping the commandments of God, obedience to his commandments, as legalistic requirements, as intolerably burdensome. But God's commandments are not burdensome. They're not grievous. Your translation may say that's that's good too. They're not designed to keep us from being happy. They're not designed to, uh, as uh, Brother Gerald Payton put it, poop our party. Uh, they do not produce grief. Uh, breaking them certainly is a source of grief. But it is the unregenerate person who views the commandments of God as burdensome. Whereas on the other hand, the children of God Look upon the word and commands of the Father as good, as holy, as right, and as worthwhile in putting it into practice in our lives. Uh, so that I think is the fundamental distinction there between the uh, the Christian and non-Christian and how we view the commands of God.
1: Uh, so that's what I see here, Alex. What do you think? You know, I'm reminded of 2 Timothy 3.12, and we did a podcast on that, See the Archives, and that's where Paul says, All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So I don't think John means to say that we won't have our crosses to carry, our trials to endure, or our burdens to bear with one another. Scripture seems abundantly clear on that matter. But since John just painted for us the portrait of God's family, where we love him and love each other, I think it's appropriate to view verse 3 in that light. Jesus told a parable of two sons, where the father tells the first son to go to work in the vineyard, to which the son refuses, but later regrets it and obeys the father. The second son said he would go, but then he didn't go. The father's command to work in the vineyard was not burdensome. It was part of being in the family. Work is good for us, but how did each son take the commandment? Each one took it as burdensome. But the first one regrets doing so. And the other son just simply lies about it. John reminds us that the Father's commands are not burdensome. Not because we don't have to work, uh, not because we don't have trials and burdens, but because of how we view that work, how we view those trials. That's up to us. Essentially, at the heart of that is the question, do we trust the Father? If we trust the Father, or should we say, the more we trust the Father, then the more those burdens become light, and those yokes become easy. That's what Jesus said to people in the Gospels, right? Come to me, for my burden is light, my yoke is easy. Part of the problem, as it was in Jesus' Jesus's day, is that, I was thinking this of, of this, Nick, when you were talking, is that sometimes leadership makes the commands of God burdensome and legalistic, and too heavy to carry, which they themselves are not willing to carry, right? So that can also push people away and marginalize them. And where did Jesus go? He went to those people. He said, no, 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 let me show you the way. So Nick, verses 4 and 5, what does it mean to overcome the world? Yeah, John writes that,
0: For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, uh, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Uh, Verse 4 literally begins, uh, John writing, All that is born of God. Very interesting way of phrasing it, but it does seem to be John's way of describing all those who have experienced spiritual birth by the Father. The Father is the one who begets Uh, And so these are those who overcome the world, a present tense thing. We continue to overcome. We keep on overcoming. Overcoming the world is vital to the Christian uh, because the world is not from the Father, uh, as we saw back in chapter 2 and verse 16. The world is passing away. That was chapter 2, verse 17. And as we'll see at the end of this chapter, the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. There is a play on words that I think is uh, lost in translation here, unfortunately. It's just tough to bring it across straight away, but uh, it, it could be translated this way. Everyone born of God conquers the world. This is the conquering that has conquered the world, our faith. And so that really brings into uh, focus that the, con- the, the conquest is not with bombs, guns, armies. The conquest is by faith in Christ Christ.
1: The Son of God, Uh, so that's what I see here about
0: overcoming the world. What say you,
1: Alex? John has already told the quote young men in chapter two, verse thirteen, that they have overcome the evil one, and John told the little children in chapter four, verse four, that they had overcome them—that is, the Antichrist—and now John says here in chapter five, verses four and five, that one born of God, who believes Jesus is the Son of God, overcomes the world. But last time, uh, you know, the last time I checked, the evil one is still here. So are the Antichrist spirits. So is the world. So if all all of that is still here, you know, how have we overcome all of that? I think the key lies once again in John's gospel. Jesus was the first one to overcome and conquer. He says in John 16, 33, These things I have spoken so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. Jesus spoke of his victory over the world as a present reality, even though the hill of Golgotha still awaited him. And so here John speaks to the Christian, assuring them of their present victory. Yes, Golgotha still waits for us too. But by faith, we're not stopping there. In a sense, our resurrection is not the victory. It's the victory party. We already have the victory. The world is already passing away, says John, but we're just getting started. We will live forever. That's how we have overcome the world. Eternity for us started when we were born of God. Now, verses 6 and 8, why does John stress here in this section the testimony of the water and the blood? What's that all about?
0: Yeah, let's get a deep seat here, shall we? And and talk about this this is verse 6 says this is he who came by water and blood jesus christ not by the water only but by the water and blood the spirit is the one who testifies the spirit is the truth verse 8 the spirit and the water and the blood uh, all testify and these three agree now it's clear john certainly emphasizes the water and the blood and he writes here that christ came through water and blood uh not in water only, but in water and in the blood. In the water and in the blood. You have the definite articles there uh, as well. So the the difference here is recognized in the prepositions. Uh, through and then in and in. Uh, so and I, and I think that's intentional. And it's strategic. It's intended to expand upon the nature of the coming of Christ in relation to water and blood. And it's... Uh, even kind of added as a phrase there, right? Not in water only. So he's John is further accentuating his point here. So how should we understand what John is saying here? There are various opinions that have been put forth. Uh, Let's uh, travel backward here uh, in time. We hit the Reformation, Luther and Calvin. Uh, These guys talked about how the two sacraments of baptism and Lord's Supper are in view here. Water and blood. Uh, So, baptism, Lord's Supper. However, it's certainly the case that water could be associated with baptism. But blood is what one writer called an unprecedented symbol for communion. And also the verb here, uh, the one, he he who came, uh, that indicates a historical coming. This is, again, what's called the aorist tense, a snapshot event in the past. So... Uh, you got some things working against that particular view. Uh, Next, we can travel back to the time of Augustine and some other ancient commentators. They connect this to John's Gospel, chapter 19 and verse 34. And you know the episode there where the soldier drives a spear up into the side of Christ and out comes uh, the blood and the water, uh, or water and blood. And so, um, again, that's how... Historically, this has been taken, but there are some things that work against this. Um, It's true that both passages are written by John, but it's tough to see here a direct allusion to that particular verse in John's gospel. Uh, Also in the gospel, John is bearing witness to the historical reality. Here it is a witness to Christ, and so uh, that's how that has been argued against. And then we go back even further to Tertullian. And Tertullian argued that water here is baptism, and blood here is the cross. And so Jesus came through both his baptism and the cross as the God-man. And this seems the most likely option. It's certainly a very simple option. Uh, It conforms to the historical setting of John's epistle. You had the heretic, Serinthus, who was alive in John's day. And he taught a form of what we can colloquially call the body snatcher heresy. That is, when Jesus, the man, was baptized, the Christ spirit descended upon him. So prior to his baptism, he wasn't Christ. And then... As the man, Jesus, is dying on the cross, that Christ spirit leaves him. Hence the cry of dereliction, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so it may be seen here that John's emphasis on he who came through water and blood, Jesus Christ, not in the water only, but in the water and the blo- in the blood, John's emphasis here is to combat the Corinthian heresy. And he points to the humanity and the divinity of Christ through and through his life. Jesus was Christ through and through, both in the water, his baptism, and in the blood, that is his death on the cross. And so faith rests on the reality of the historical Jesus as Christ, the Son of God, through and through his whole life. Uh, So uh, that's what I see going on here with this emphasis on uh, the water and the blood. Alex, what do you think?
1: Well, I think uh, that was a good Explanation. Thanks for carrying us backwards through time. I'm not very tempted by Luther or Calvin. I am pretty tempted by Augustine and what he says, connecting the blood and the water to the uh, to the event where the spear was thrust through Jesus' side in John 19:34. Because John does emphasize in his gospel, like water and blood came out. I saw it. I know what I saw is true. I'm telling the truth, right? He emphasizes his witness, and that witness idea does play into what John says about the testimony and witness of the blood and the water here in 1 John 5. Uh, I even found some early church writers like Origen who point to the event of that spear thrust, the water and the blood coming out as a supernatural sign of Jesus' divinity and comparing that to what happens uh, to to other normal bodies when they're dead. Um, uh, Spoiler alert, you don't get water and blood pouring out like that. The blood congeals. Anyway, I'm compelled, though— however, to agree with Tertullian. And I think John is making reference to Jesus' baptism, to his death, and uh, coming through both of those, all the while remaining the divine logos infused in human flesh, right? Not the Corinthus heresy, not the body snatcher heresy. So I am most convinced of this by Tertullian because, as you pointed out, John says not by water only— but by water and blood. So there was, there's was. there got to be some sort of argument that was happening that puts this emphasis into context so that it indicates that it, there was an argument here. The Corinthians heresy may be a good fit for that. However, John goes on. and He doesn't stop with the water and the blood. He throws in the spirit now into the equation. So let's talk about that. Why does John mention three things that testify, adding the spirit in addition to the water and the blood? Verses 7 and 8, Nick.
0: Yeah, and even even back into verse 6, the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is truth. There are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree. Um, yeah, adding the Spirit, I guess he adds the Spirit because, as he says, the Spirit is the truth. John may have in mind here that you know the law required two or three witnesses, and so he has two, even three witnesses, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. Spirit, of course, is given priority here. He's God, after all. And also, the Spirit testifies through the water and through the blood. And also, I do want to accentuate here, John's theology is thoroughly Trinitarian. Uh, Verses 6 through 9 emphasize the whole Trinity's activity. It is the Son who came, it is the Spirit who testifies, and also the Father has testified as well. So, Father, Son, Spirit, all involved in this beautiful picture of Trinitarian harmony in the uh, working out of their purposes in uh, redemption in time and space. So, uh, that's what I see here about uh, the addition of the Spirit here as well.
1: What do you think, Alex? You know, since the water refers to an event, Jesus' baptism, and the blood refers to an event, Jesus' death then I wonder if the spirit testifying also refers to a specific event. Now, in keeping with my comments on chapter 4, that there are spirits which are from God, they're called angels, and they're under the special direction of the Holy Spirit, I'm thinking of an event which testified to the divine and human nature of Jesus. And that event would be the Annunciation. In the Annunciation, the Archangel Gabriel tells Mary that what she will conceive will be both the Son of David and also the Son of God. So all three events then, if I'm right, would testify that Jesus is the Son of God, both his humanity and his divinity. The Spirit then testifies through Gabriel that Jesus is the Son of God in the Annunciation. Uh, The Father testifies in a voice from the heavens at Jesus' baptism that jesus is his son and jesus testifies on the cross that he is the son of god when he says father into your hands i commit my spirit and he breathes his last okay verse seven then nick there is a little bit of a translation um let's see controversy here so what do you think do new bible translations erase the Trinity from verse 7. Yes, a conspiracy
0: indeed, huh? And yeah, its I mean, it's a substantial difference. Uh, if you're working with uh, the King James or the New King James, it reads substantially different. Here's my English standard, for there are three that testify. That's what verse 7 says. Uh, and in in verse 8, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. However, if you're reading from, again, the King James, New King James, you'll notice it reads this way. For there are three that bear record, is the King James, witness, is the New King James, in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, King James, or Spirit, New King James. And there are three that bear witness in or on earth, and then Spirit, water, and blood. And so this reading here is what has been called the comma johannium, New translations read, just like my English standard, there are three that testify, spirit, water, and blood. The difference in these readings has led some to say that these new translations are corrupt. They're perverse. They change the Bible. They're erasing the Trinity right from the pages of Scripture. Well, not exactly. And uh, if you had a deep seat already, get an even deeper seat. Here we go. Um, First, The first thing I'll say is the newer translations do not erase the Trinity from the Scriptures. Old Testament and New Testament texts can be marshaled to affirm the triune nature of God. And they're in all the Bibles. For example, Matthew 28, verse 19, you are to baptize in the name, singular, of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, There's a plurality there. There's the three persons of the Godhead. So, and that's just one example you can go through. Again, Old Testament, New Testament, all affirming the triune nature of God. Second, okay, fine. Granted that, why do these newer translations read differently? The answer is the external evidence for the comma johannium being original to the letter that is written by John is non-existent. The New English Translation contains a substantial note on this verse, and much of the remainder of my comments on this are going to come from that note. First, no Greek manuscript of the New Testament contains this reading until the 14th century, and that's Manuscript 629. In other words, Greek Christians for the first 1,300 years of church history, when they read 1 John, did not read. The words that are contained in the King James, New King James, the comma, Johannium. Second, no Greek church writer quotes uh, the comma, Johannium. And that is quite telling because there are a lot of those Greek writers which would have loved a text like this. That so clearly and succinctly affirms the doctrine of the Trinity, and they would have loved that when they were arguing against heretics in their day who denied the Trinity, but they don't do that. And that's, again, quite telling. And then even in the Latin church, Latin church writers who quote 1 John 5, verses 6 through 8, they read very much like these newer translations. For example, Ambrose, as the Bishop of Milan, he quotes 1 John 5, verses 6 through 8 in his work on the Holy Spirit, and his citation is virtually verbatim to what we have in the English Standard, the NIV, the New American Standard, and the rest. And and for that citation, it's in Ambrose on the Holy Spirit, Book 3, chapter 10, section 67. Also, Leo the Great, he reads similarly in his quotation of 1 John 5, verses 6 through 8, in his Epistle 28, section 5, Uh, and again, the comma Johannium, absent from his citation as well. So, okay, where did this come from then? And let me just quote from the New English Translation note uh, at length. The reading seems to have arisen in a 4th century Latin homily in which the text was allegorized to refer to the members of the Trinity. From there, it made its way into copies of the Latin Vulgate, the text that was used by the Roman Catholic Church. The Trinitarian formula made its way into the third edition of Erasmus's Greek New Testament in 1522 because of pressure from the Catholic Church. You see, and just an aside here, Erasmus had excluded the reading in his first uh, two editions of his Greek New Testament because he couldn't find it. It was lacking uh, in, in the texts that he had. He's so lacking textual evidence, he didn't include it. Continuing in the quotation here, after his first edition appeared, there arose such a furor over the absence of the comma that Erasmus needed to defend himself. He argued that he did not put in the comma because he found no Greek manuscripts that included it. Well, one was produced, Codex 61. It was actually produced in 1522, and it was produced specifically to answer the charge and the challenge of Erasmus. And so Erasmus, he apparently felt obligated, and he included the reading. Okay, so net-net. What do we do with this? Well, first, let me just affirm, we have what John originally wrote. When it comes to the text of Scripture, we have the full revelation of God, nothing lacking. In fact, when it comes to the text of the New Testament specifically, the problem is not that we're missing chunks or portions. We often have an abundance due to a couple things. One is uh, pious expansion. You get this in the the name Jesus Christ or Lord Jesus. Uh, some scribe will come in and insert Lord to the phrase Jesus Christ, or they'll insert Christ to Lord Jesus Uh, That's, again, called pious expansion. Or you also get, as in the case with the comma johannium, you have marginal readings that find their way into the text. I've heard it described this way. We have 11,000 pieces to a 10,000-piece puzzle. So we have the original text of the New Testament. second thing I'll affirm here is this is a matter of history, not heresy. The translators of the newer versions, they do not deny the Trinity, Rather, they're being faithful in translating what John, inspired of the Holy Spirit, originally wrote, not what was produced some 1,400 years after the fact in order to put pressure on a Catholic priest who was producing his Greek New Testament. Uh, no, that's not what's going on here. Uh, second, uh, or third, the doctrine of the Trinity can be and ought to be demonstrated from elsewhere in Scripture and is in no way dependent upon a single text which John did not write, nor is it compromised by the removal of a phrase which was not original in the first place. So that's a long way around the mountain, uh, but uh, uh, that is the explanation as to why, well, why these new translations are Why are they erasing? They're not erasing. It, John didn't write it originally. It wasn't there to begin with. It found its way in later, and there you have it. Uh, that's what I see here. Alex, you want to toss in anything to the mix
1: here? I think you well upholstered that subject. (laughs) (laughs) That was good. That was good. That was a nice excursus. A nice uh, excursus into the translation there. Well, back into the text of verse, let's see. You just did seven and eight. Verse nine. Okay. Verse nine says, If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. So the question is, uh, when did God testify concerning his son? Because he said, uh, what is this? For this is the testimony of God is this, that he has testified concerning his son. When did he do that?
0: Yeah, uh, my English data is just a little different. He has borne uh, this testimony concerning his son. So uh, what do you have here? You have the father has borne uh, this testimony concerning the son, and it is a perfect tense verb, and uh, this indicates... Past completed action, present continued results. So in the past, the testimony was born by the Father of the Son, and it is recorded, it's on record in the present time. Uh, so that's the force of what John writes here. Uh, certainly, the, the time stamp for this would include the incarnation. You have phrases in the Gospels like, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Uh, you have, that's spoken at the baptism of Jesus, at the um, uh, transfiguration as well. However, the father certainly testifies to the son prior to the incarnation, like, say, for example, Psalm 2, where David records, I will tell of the decree, Yahweh said to me, you are my son. That's Psalm 2, verse 7, and we know that is richly messianic. It is quoted in the New Testament as applicable to Christ. And so here's David, some. 1,000 years before Christ ever walks the planet, and yet he has a front row seat to this inter-Trinitarian conversation between the Father and the Son. The Father uh, bearing testimony, you are my Son. Beautiful thing. And so, uh, several options there. What do you think, Alex, about the testimony
1: of God concerning the Son? I think John is actually referring to the three that testify concerning the Son in the previous verse, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And so f- for me, this is just a simple summarizing of all their testimony as the testimony of God. Uh, it's an umbrella statement in conclusion to his previous point. But I do agree. I mean, you you are right. There are Old Testament passages that testify about the Son as well. So there is no lacking of testimony concerning the Son, uh, what he will do what he does when he comes and what will happen when he returns so plenty of testimony when did this happen well there were some key points there in jesus's life the annunciation incarnation baptism transfiguration his crucifixion his resurrection and so forth nick verse 10 what does it mean for the believer to then have the testimony in himself what is that?
0: Yeah, verse 10, whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Uh, and, and the present tense is, is used uh, not only for the one believing, uh, but also the, having the testimony. So they continue to have the testimony of God in himself. Well, how is that? Well, several options present themselves. One, some say, by the indwelling Spirit bearing his witness in us. Uh, and there are some who connect this back to the Spirit testifying back in verse 6, so uh, that may be what's involved here. There are others who say this testimony of God abides in the heart of the believer as, quote, an additional source of evidence supplementing and confirming the external evidence, end quote. And then uh, a third option, there are still others who say faith is this testimony, serving as its own witness in the hearts and minds of Christians, and confirmed in the objective evidence God has provided in the Spirit, uh, and also in the water, and also in the blood. So faith seems likely. The contrast here is between the one believing and the one not believing, because uh, the rest of the verse goes on to talk about whoever does not believe God is uh, does not believe God has made him a liar. So I see the contrast there as pointing to faith as the likely uh, answer here
1: for having testimony in himself. What do you think, Alex? I think those are all good options. I'm most convinced by the first one that John is referring to the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in the believer. Uh, we know that John teaches the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. You can go back to chapter 3, verse 24. Uh, here in close proximity to the testimony, John tells us that this it is the Spirit that testifies. So the one who believes in the Son of God has the indwelling of that testimony. In other words, the indwelling of that Spirit who testified. But the one who does not believe, obviously, would not have the Spirit of God in them, since that's a gift given by God to the believer. Furthermore, Paul also says in Romans eight sixteen that the Spirit himself also testifies with our spirit, so the continuing testimony of the Spirit, not just of who Jesus is, but the testimony to our spirit that we are children of God. So that builds on more of the idea the Spirit not only testifying about who Jesus is, but now testifying about who we are in Jesus. So that's the way I see it. Now we have verse 11 and 12. The testimony is this. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. So, Nick, what is eternal life?
0: Yeah, this is a theme which bookends this entire epistle. Back in 1 verse 2, John talked about how the life was made manifest. We have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. And then at the end of this chapter, the end of the book, 5 verse 20, John will talk about how Jesus Christ is the true God and eternal life. Excuse me. All right, it's a a prominent theme throughout the entire epistle. So, so what do we make of this? Well, first, let's tackle the adjective here, which is eternal, uh, which is describing the kind of life. There are some who, when it comes to the term eternal, they emphasize the qualitative aspect of the term while not accentuating or perhaps even ignoring in some cases the qualitative aspect. In other words, say again.
1: They ignore the quantitative, you mean?
0: Yes, quantitative while accentuate the qualitative. Okay, okay. In other words, some accentuate the nature of the thing described while they are diminishing or dismissing the duration of the thing. That's really what it comes down to, nature and duration. The nature is the quality, and then the duration is the quantity. Uh, uh, however, the term eternal Captures both of those elements, the nature and the duration of the thing described. And to deny either or both aspects leaves you with a flattened view of the eternal. For example, God is the eternal God in Romans 16 and verse 26. Now, as it pertains to the quantity of his years, he's from everlasting to everlasting. Psalm 90, verse 2 emphasizes that. And as to the quality of of who he is he's of an altogether different nature he's a it's a spiritual nature since god is spirit john 4 and verse 24 and so this is a full orb view of god as eternal much more can be said about that but suffice to say you see both elements there now as it applies here to life god gave us eternal life it is life of a spiritual nature and it is of unending duration We can and we do experience eternal life in the here and the now with the promise of a deeper, fuller uh, experience of it in the there and the then. Uh, So I emphasize both aspects of the term eternal here and especially as it's applied to life. Uh, What do you think, Alex, about this eternal life?
1: Yeah, the word eternal in its original language does have a nuanced meaning depending on the way in which it's being used and what is being described. Uh, In other words, we wouldn't describe our eternalness as being quite the same as God's eternalness. In other words, eternal, it does describe something's quantity and quality to a certain degree, but to what extent is solely dependent upon the context, especially when looking at examples from the Old Testament. However, I will say that in the New Testament, the word eternal almost always has both a pretty strong quantitative and qualitative aspect to it the topic of debate that really most centers around how we view and understand the term eternal the idea of eternity um, the topic of debate that centers around that the most really is the punishment of uh, those in the resurrection you know whether one views eternal punishment in terms of annihilation or never-ending conscience uh, conscious torment and you know, that's a, a debate for a different podcast. But that's kind of where this comes up the most. Here in John, eternal life, it does have both a quality and quantity uh, in mind. The quality aspect, I think, he emphasizes more, though, in John's gospel, which his readers would already be familiar with, especially especially Jesus' teaching in John 10, where Jesus says, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. Though this verse speaks not to the health and wealth gospel of televangelists, it does speak to the spiritual reality that Jesus brought to us in the present life through faith in him and the quality uh, of this eternal life Jesus calls abundant. John emphasizes, though, here in his epistle, I think the quantity. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 17 says, The world is passing away and also its lust, but the one who does the will of God lives Forever, Dying in the flesh is not death for the Christians. It's just a a changing of clothes, uh, being then clothed with our new body in the resurrection. We live forever. Uh, The world does not. The second death has no power over us, just as John wrote in the book of Revelation. So, Nick, in verse 13 then, uh, John says, These things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, uh, so that you may know that you have eternal life. So what does it mean to believe in the name? Uh, Once again, uh, the
0: present tense, and this again is a present participle, the one believing in the name of the Son. Uh, This all points to the continuous nature of the faith that's in view here. Uh, John writes, The ones believing in the name of the Son of God. The name is the very character, the the nature of the person. This is the object of the faith, uh, the object of belief. Uh, So to believe in the name is to put your full trust, your full faith in the nature and character of that person. And in this case, it is the person of Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. So according to John one must believe in the full-orbed person and nature of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, in order to have eternal life. The proto-Gnostic heretics would not have believed in the Christ as presented by John. They believe in a false Christ, uh, and so therefore they do not have life. In fact, we can back up to verse 12 there. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. That's the the only options there. Life, no life. But for the Christian, the one believing in the name of the Son of God, and we really need to accentuate this too, you who believe, you have eternal life, and you know that you have eternal life, that knowledge, that deep abiding knowledge uh, of having eternal life. And it is the current present possession. Uh, it is a real present possession. Uh, it's not... In prospect only, there's certainly more to come, but there is the already aspect of this. There is the now part of this where we do really truly have eternal life. And I wanted to accentuate that as well. And it is rooted in continued faith in the name of the Son of God. Uh, So uh, that's what I see
1: here concerning belief in the name. What say you, Alex? I think those are some good points. Uh, The present active tense of believe here in this verse could be better understood as go on believing, and uh, you've mentioned that I've mentioned that uh, several times. So that's it. That is important, and that's how uh, John's gospel uses that term uh, believe in many cases as well. It's that present active go on believing. Now that phrase in the name um, is in the Greek to onama, and so uh, talk about you know a difference in prepositions. This can make a difference, right? So sometimes in the name is Um, and i would say if it was epitoonomity then it would be pointing towards the authority and the nature and the character of uh, the thing in which you're believing right uh, but here it's ace is into into the name of and that can uh, sometimes indicate a transaction a transference which has taken place something's being transferred into the name of someone else in the Great Commission, for instance, Matthew 28, 18-20, through 20, the disciples are to baptize more disciples into the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, uh, that is, into their possession. So here we have in John, in his epistle, the continuous nature of our transfer into God's possession. It's both a past event and a present ongoing reality. In other words, John is saying, these things I have written to you who go on believing into the possession of the Son of God. That's the thrust of the idea. We are his possession now, but more fully later. It's already, but not yet. It's the already, but not yet nature of Christianity. Paul tells us in Ephesians 1, verses 13 to 14, that the Holy Spirit is the pledge of our inheritance. It's a down payment, if you will, with the view of being redeemed later as God's possession. We've been signed, we've been sealed we will be delivered that's the idea here the already but not yet so in verses 14 and 15 then it talks about the will of god knowing that you have received what you have asked according to his will so really uh talk to us for a second here nick how do we know then if we're asking according to god's will Yeah, especially the
0: end of verse 14 there. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And I think the key phrase there is according to God's will. What is his will? Well, his will is uh, what he wants and what he has revealed to people. Uh, Using John's language, God's will for Christians is that we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. Back in 3 verse 22, uh, we saw earlier about obeying the commands at the beginning of chapter 5. So in other words... Uh, do what he wants, or to say it another way, do what he wills. Now, is according to his will, that phrase, is it a, a restriction on prayer? Well, uh, no, it's a, a qualification of children who have the Father's ear. We can ask, and he hears everything, because we live according to his will. Uh, So that's what I see here concerning asking according to his will. Uh, What do you think,
1: Alex? I agree with that. You know, we can ask for anything, but there are certain things that if we ask for, we know he will answer in the affirmative. John takes his letter filled with that which is the will of God and affirms that these will be answered in prayer. Do we want to learn to love the Father more? Do we want to learn to love each other more? Do we want to better observe God's commandments? Do we want to go on believing to eternal life? John assumes that what he writes will be what you ask for, and he promises God will hear and respond to such requests. This promise points not only to what John has said so far in his letter, but also to what he will say in these last few verses concerning our prayers for each other. So, Moving on to verses 16 and 17 then, there's a sin leading to death, there's a sin not leading to death, there's this idea of praying for one another regarding those things. First, Nick, what is the sin leading to death? What is the sin not leading to death?
0: Oh boy, how much time do we have? Um, several options have been offered. We have, have 11 minutes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's all. Several options have been offered to explain what uh, these two things mean. Uh, one some have reached back into the law to utilize the categories of unintentional sin and deliberate sin and you can read numbers 15 verses 22 to 25 also 30 and 31 for more on that uh, in response to that particular option there are some who answer that such categories don't seem to be what john is referring to uh, second option others say that the the Sin leading to death is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Mark 3, verse 29, Jesus talks about that uh, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit there. That's the sin unto death that John is talking about here. Well, again, in in response to, the, to this option, uh, though this specific sin of ascribing the work of the Spirit to the devil, uh, it doesn't appear to be what John is referring to. So that's working against that option. And then third, there are still others here who see particularly heinous sins like murder, adultery, idolatry, apostasy, even the kind of departure that was demonstrated in the false teachers. <clears throat> but again, evidence for this particular option is scant in First John, though such sins would certainly lead to death. Now, what do we have then? What is it? Well, first, we need to note the context. God hearing and answering the prayers of his people, as we've talked about there in verses 14 and 15. Specifically, John applies this principle to intercessory prayer uh, here in verse 16, where if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, that is, ask God, and God will give him life, or he will give him life. So this is intercessory prayer where you have one brother, who is the anyone there at the beginning of the verse, if anyone sees his brother. So you have one brother praying for his brother. Both the one praying and the one being prayed for are believers. That's the context here. So here's a Christian. sees his brother, sister, a fellow Christian, literally sinning a sin, and that sin is not unto or toward death. So this is, first of all, this is not suspicion. This is not hearsay. This is not, I heard it through the grapevine. The sin is observable, all right? This brother sees his brother. It is the sin of a fellow believer. And to borrow the language throughout the epistle that John has utilized, then the sin not unto death is the sin of a fellow light-walking, truth-possessing, brother-loving, righteousness-practicing, God-loving, Christ-confessing brother on the other hand, then, to borrow the language that's found throughout the epistle, the sin unto death is sin of a darkness-walking and even darkness-loving, based on John 3.19, falsehood-possessing, church-hating, sin-practicing, God-hating, Christ-denying unbeliever. And John says, don't pray for that. Or, or perhaps more succinctly, sin unto death is sin that is not covered by the blood of Christ, whereas sin unto death is sin, uh, sin unto death is sin that is not covered by the blood. Sin not unto death is covered by the blood of Christ. So the death of Christ ensures that the believer's sin does not lead to death. However, if one is not confessing Christ, the Son of God, well, the death of Christ doesn't have any value in that per- in, in that person's life, and their sin leads only to death. So. Again, long way around the mountain, deep seat, but uh, that's what I see here concerning sin leading to death, sin not leading to death. Alex, what do you think?
1: I would summarize it um, a little differently, so I'll put it in my own words, right? I would summarize the sin leading not unto death is that sin of a Christian who still walks in the light. Their loyalty to Jesus has not been compromised, but their sanctification is still underway. That pretty much describes all of us as believers. I would summarize the sin leading unto death is that of a Christian who no longer walks in the light. Their loyalty to Jesus has been compromised. Their sanctification has halted because they live a settled lifestyle of sin. They don't call it sin. They justify it away. They don't care. They deny apostolic creedal confessions in the process. This kind of person does not need intercession. This kind of person needs intervention. Go back to James chapter 5 at the end there, verses 19 through 20. And this is James's power statement. This is what he ends on. This is the last thing he says. He says, My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So I would summarize by intercede. Uh, Let's say this. I'm going to start over. Intercede for the fellow believer in their weakness and sin. Intervene for the former believer in their error and try to turn them back. Intercession versus intervention. Verse uh, 16, Nick, still talking about intercession then. Are we supposed to ask for forgiveness to God on behalf of our fellow believers? What do you think?
0: Yeah, it's it's a good question. Uh what comes to mind is Simon uh, in Acts chapter 8 and verse 24, where he asks Peter and John, after he's sinned a grievous sin, trying to purchase the uh, miraculous gift of the Holy Spirit from the apostles, uh, he asks Peter and John to pray for him after he's been rebuked for his sin. There's, I think, your intervention, which you're talking about there. And he specifically says, pray for me. To the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. And so I think that gets tossed in the mix here as well, in terms of asking for forgiveness on behalf of fellow believers. What do you think,
1: Alex? Peter says in 1 Peter 2 9 that we are a royal priesthood. You go back into your Old Testament, and the template for a priest is there. One of the priest's main jobs is intercession on behalf of the people. So I answer in the affirmative yes. We are supposed to ask God to forgive the sins of our fellow believers. This is why we confess our sins to one another so that we can pray for each other. Forgiveness is part of that prayer. You can look at James 5:16, 1 John chapter 1 verse 9. We do this even collectively, as a group, as a community when we pray the Lord's prayer, right? And the Lord's prayer it says, "Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us that forgiveness is in the context of that believing community you're not just asking for your own forgiveness but for the forgiveness of those with you in that believing community so yes we are supposed to ask for forgiveness on behalf of our fellow believers and to me this ties back to the first thing you said towards the beginning of the episode about loving one another Uh, in the sense of desiring to see Christ uh, more perfectly formed in their minds and their hearts. Well, if that desire is there and growing, then you'll be praying for their weakness and their sin as they also try to walk in the light with you. Verse 18, Nick talking about the evil one here, right? We know that no one who was born of God sins, but uh, he who was born of God Keeps him and the evil one does not touch him. So, what does it mean? The evil one cannot touch the one born of God.
0: Yeah, I've, I've been careful to point out the various verbal tenses that the Holy Spirit through John utilized in delivering this epistle to the saints. This verse is a prime example of why care must be taken in discerning those verbal tenses. Everyone who has been born of God. Same construction as we saw earlier in this chapter, back in uh, verse 1, uh, especially the, the the perfect tense uh, with the, the passive voice. Uh, but uh, he who was born of God protects him. Uh, he who was born of God is different. It is an aorist tense. And I, I think this is deliberate because John... seems to be referring to Christ as he who was born of God. And so, uh, one writer put it this way, that the perfect participle expresses him who came to be and still continues to be a son of God. The aorist participle occurs nowhere else in St. John. It expresses him who, without relation to time past or present, is the son of God. So then, with all that, what do we have? Well, we have yet another promise of the protective care of the Son of God for the sons of God, the children of God. He's the one who keeps those given to him by his Father, and he guards them, as he prays in John 17, verse 12. No one, he says, no one can snatch them from his hand, and his hand is covered by the Father's hand, John 10, verses 28 and 29. Uh, No one will snatch them from my hand. No one is able to snatch from my Father's hand. So the one born of God, Christ, keeps all the ones who have been born of God, which are Christians. So that's what I see John saying here with the protection we have from the evil one. What say you, Alex?
1: Well, I'll start by saying what this does not mean, because when we start using words like protection, then that starts to bring to mind... Uh, ways in which people are seriously hurt by uh, the evil done in this world. So it does not mean that Satan can't hurt us. It doesn't mean that we can't be hurt right now in this life, even as believing Christians. It's self-evident that Satan can hurt us. He does hurt us. We're in a real spiritual war right now. The evil one uses evil means and evil people to do what he does, to steal, to kill, and to destroy So how is it that the evil one can't touch us? If we look at the fall, Satan, the serpent, was told that he would eat the dust of the earth. Well, snakes don't eat dust, so what does it mean? Adam was told that he was made from dust and would return to dust, referring to his bodily death. So I think it's reasonable to conclude that Satan exercises some measure of control over those whose soul remains tainted by sin after death. And even uh, now, right? Our soul tainted by sin. This is part of the construct that Satan is Lord of the dead. But there are those who even after death, Satan cannot touch. John says, that's you. That's you, the Christian, safely in the hands of Christ, safely in the hands of the Father. I like the way you uh, nestled that together, like those, uh, what are those called, the Russian uh, nesting dolls? Yeah. So the Christian is safe from the one who cannot destroy the soul, but only the body. For our God, he could destroy both body and soul in hell. He's the Lord of Lords. So security of our soul begins now. It continues in our bodily death and onward towards our resurrection. So he can't touch us in our soul, right? He can't rip us out of the Father's hand, out of Jesus' hand, in terms of stealing our salvation. If we want that to happen, he's got to use some other means of deception, kind of like the way uh, Balaam found that loophole with uh, the king of Moab, Balak, to get the Israelites to... Uh, curse themselves, since they couldn't directly do it while they were under God's protection. That was just an example that came to mind. So verse 19 says the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So I was thinking, to what extent do you think, Nick, is the evil one allowed to or able to empower the world if the world lies in his power?
0: Once more, we must not miss the dichotomy here. There are On the one hand, believers who are from God, we are from God, John writes there uh, in verse 19, they are in distinction from the whole world that lies in the power of the evil one. And so there are only two possible options. There's believers and then there's the world. There is no middle ground. Neutrality is impossible. Now, the whole world lies in the grip of the evil one. And what is pictured here, you know, we, we have a couple of recliners in our living room, maybe you, diligent listener as well, you have a, a lazy boy in the living room, and you know, you, you go in there, you pull the handle, you kick your feet up, and you just lay there and relax, And and, and then when someone wants you to get up, oh man, and you got to get up and all that. That's the picture here of a reclining, lazy boy style. There's no struggle to get free, just nicely laying there passively. That's the idea of the the whole world lies under the power, in the grip of the evil one. And the tragic truth is that the world loves it there. The world loves darkness more than light. The world loves their sin. So that's what I see here in terms of... The whole world lying under the power of the evil one. Alex, what do you think?
1: Yeah, uh, man, brings up another question, right? What do we mean when we're singing, this is my father's world? What we mean is that we have an eschatological hope that this world is not what it should be, but one day will be as God desires. The whole world is in the power of the evil one. But Christians live in a world inside of the world, a new cosmos, a new creation, which spreads to reclaim those spaces once filled with darkness and then fills them with light. We are in the world, but we're not of the world. Yet we have conquered the world through Jesus Christ, and we actively campaign against those places which have yet to yield uh, fealty to the one true king. The extent to which the evil one can empower the world is seriously daunting. I mean, he's the spirit now working in the sons of disobedience, Ephesians 2.2. Let's review the army of the evil one. Let's see, fallen angels, demons, all the bad guys listed in Ephesians 6.12, false teachers, antichrists, idolaters, all the occult practitioners, those who love darkness more than light, not to mention the strings that can be pulled using governmental powers, temptations, deceptions, illusions, propaganda, war, and plague. But even in the midst of such power, Jesus, through the Great Commission, opens our eyes. Just like the servant of Elisha needed his eyes to be opened when surrounded by the armies of men so that he could see the armies of God's fiery chariots, we have the advantage in the heavenly realms. That's why we can go and take back the nations for Christ. The world may be lying in the power of the evil one. And I do like that image you gave of one sleeping in their lazy boy. But guess what? We have the power to wake them up and to snatch them from the fire. So, Nick, verse 20, John ends uh, his letter here with a couple of powerful statements. And this one, I think, is a good one. He says that uh, Jesus Christ is the true God and the eternal life. So what does it mean that Jesus is the true God and eternal life? Verse 20 woven into the warp and wolf
0: of the epistle is the deity and sonship of jesus now john flatly affirms jesus is the true god this sets the son on equal footing with the father who is the only true god john 17 and verse three so the father and the son are co-equal and yet they are distinct persons of the godhead And so john has worked diligently to maintain This vital teaching. Any other Christ or any other son of God is a mere pretender, a false God. The Jesus the apostles knew is the true, real God. And of course, Jesus is also eternal life. In him, and in him only, is eternal life. We saw that back in verse 12. He himself is the embodiment of eternal life. He himself says that uh, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So that's what I see here, what it means that Jesus is the true God and eternal
1: life. What do you think, Alex? Yes, John in one sentence affirms and summarizes what he has expounded upon in his letter. The one called Jesus is also the Son, and the Christ, and the true God, and the source of eternal life. Jesus is the true God, meaning that he is genuinely God. He's not a substitute God, he's not a created God, he's not a vessel for God, but he's the genuine article, the divine logos which created all things and became incarnate, infusing himself with human flesh. Jesus is the eternal life because all things came into being through him and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. If one desires eternal life, they must go to the source of all life. So last question, Nick, wrapping up the episode, verse 21. Why does the letter end with a random note on idolatry?
0: Yeah, wrapping up the episode, the chapter, and the whole epistle, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Yeah, that that final exhortation, it does seem out of place until we read it in view of the entire epistle, which has championed the true view of Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. Anything less than the Jesus the apostles knew, fully human, fully divine, in one person, anything else would be an idol. It would be a false Christ. It would be a false God. So that's how I see this epistle wrapping up. Alex, what do you think?
1: Well, I think first we should note that John especially has the little children in mind for this command. You know, those who are young in their faith, have yet to endure in their faith through time, growth, and experience. To these little children believers, he says to guard yourselves from idols. I don't take this to be a reference to the literal statue shrine rituals on every corner of the ancient world. Rather, the spirits behind those idols and the spirits behind the idols are demonic, says Paul in First Corinthians 10, verses 19 through 20, which affirms the reality of a dark power within ritual idolatry. And if that dark power can't get you through idol rituals, then they'll try to get you through idolatrous teaching, which is any narrative which supplants the true nature and narrative of Jesus Christ with something else. One must guard themselves from narrative idolatry, and I think that's the warning here at the end of 1 John. Nick, any final thoughts or exhortations to our audience? You know, uh, when when I
0: took 1 John at SIBI, Gerald Payden was the instructor. Did you have Gerald for 1 John?
1: I, I sure did, the late great. He
0: called his class, The Theology of Assurance. And I think that's apropos. The whole epistle has been driving toward these final concluding words, especially verse 13, which seems to be uh, one of many, but it seems to be the primary, for me at least, uh, uh, thesis statement, uh, theme verse of 1 John 5.13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is this is reality for the Christian, for the one who continues to believe in the name of the Son of God, we continue to know, we continue to have eternal life. It is intended to be an assurance to us. God doesn't want us walking through life as question marks, but as exclamation points as another one of our instructors used to say. And so uh that's that's the the goal here is to assure these believers that uh, there's no need to go and embrace a uh, a false narrative, a false god, a pale pastel, but rather you have the true, real thing in God, the Son, uh, and you do have eternal life. And it uh, is is a beautiful epistle, a beautiful testimony to that the theology
1: of assurance. So that's what I say
0: uh, as kind of a wrap up. Alex, what say you?
1: You know, every time I study First John, I am impressed. Uh, with the fact that you can't really uh, you can't really make the most sense out of the letter without thoroughly uncovering John's complex of ideas in his gospel. So you're not going to be a First John expert unless you're a Gospel of John expert. It's just not going to work. Uh, also, you're going to need to know some of the historical background. Uh, This is one of those things that uh, brings more strongly to the present that this was not written to us. It's for us. We use it, but it wasn't to us because there is a massive underlying undercurrent of assumed context and information that is not that easy to pull out of the letter by itself. And so, yeah, you're going to need to study that historical context and look at other... Uh, documents written in and around that time and what people say about this letter in the first few generations of the church and onward see if that understanding changes or remains the same and so I'm continually impressed by this letter that you know I can't just pick it up like I pick up one of Paul's letters Those those are much easier to dive into this one the simple truth makes its way through But to get very far, you really do need a lot of other information to bring things uh, into a clearer understanding. So that's why we do the podcast. I think we've uh, done the footwork here for you, diligent listener. We try to bring that out for you so that you can have it and available in your study of the scriptures. And hopefully this brings you closer to Jesus and to the love of the Father by doing so. So that's my final thoughts on the epistle. And this is our last episode, I believe, for the year 2021. So you'll have to catch up with us in 2022. And the um, sword play Swagger giveaway is still underway. We're going to retroactively award some people and give away some goodies in the new year. So uh, I chalk that up to uh, being terribly sick for a month. <laughs> so... <laughs> So you'll have to give me a pass on that one. but uh, Pass Nick, granted. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Tell our audience uh, how they can help the podcast.
0: Yeah, go into your particular uh, podcast streaming platform. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Music, Amazon Music. Uh, download the episodes, take them with you on the go, and leave a review. Uh, the appropriate number of stars is five, and uh, feel free to leave a written <laughs> review. We will... Read that on air. Uh, we we do appreciate all of our listeners. If you have a question that you would like for us to answer on air, we've already we've got a we've got a a good pool of questions that we're uh, going to be working through here in the near future and, and answer them uh, here on the podcast. If you have a question, you can text it in to area code three one six twenty four sword. That is three one six two 316-247-9673. We'll get the question, and then we will answer it again on air for you. If they want to email that question in, Alex, where can they send
1: it? Send your questions to swordplaypodcast at gmail.com. That's swordplaypodcast at gmail.com. We wish you a Merry Christmas. We wish you a Happy New Year. Uh, We hope you had a great St. Nicholas Day, and we hope you will have a great epiphany. And so during this Advent season, we do wish you the best. And we appreciate your support and listening to the podcast. Next time, we will catch up with you on another episode of Swordplay, your double-edged perspective on scripture.